are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture is from Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that, is, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard him behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamps of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You're going to have to bear with me this morning. I decided to fast from coffee during Lent. The jury is still out on whether that was a wise decision. So combine that with losing an hour of sleep. I could be a little crankier than usual this morning, all right? Um, I want to let you know, uh, back at the resource table, the intro to Revelation booklets are still available. This is a, a little booklet that we put together to sort of introduce the book of Revelation, get you up to speed on some of the theological concerns and some of the things you probably need to know to read this book insightfully and wisely. And so these are available for a dollar at the resource table this morning. We did have some left after last week, and so they are still there for you if you want one. About two years ago, my wife and I conspired to get our children a puppy for Christmas. 
my kids had been asking for a dog for years, and we decided, you know what, they're probably finally at the age where that's a good decision. We're not changing diapers anymore, so we're probably ready for a dog. So we, uh, we decided we would do that, but rather than just, you know, getting a dog, we decided, hey, let's wait till Christmas. Let's do the whole, you know, open the box, puppy jumps out thing. Why not, right? Um, the only thing more fun than being a kid at Christmas is being a parent and trying to figure out how are you going to just shock your kids with awe and wonder and delight at Christmas. And so this was the plan we came up with. Now, to make this plan work, um, my kids are smart, and they, you know, they, they figure stuff out. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to have to be proactive about crushing any hope that they have that they're ever going to get a dog, because that will make it all the better. So I gave myself about five months before Christmas to just relentlessly crushing my kids' hopes that they would ever own any kind of canine, all right? And so I, uh, I would say things like, they would say, you know, hey, daddy, can we have a dog? And I would say, you can't even keep your room clean. I'm never getting you a dog. And, you know, we'd go on walks around the neighborhood, and I would say, look at that dog pooping over there. Aren't you glad you don't have a dog and you don't have to clean up after a dog? And uh, so I would just relentlessly try to beat down their hopes. And I knew that it had worked one day when we were sitting at the dinner table, and my daughter Sophie said, daddy, are we ever going to be able to get a dog? And before I could answer, my oldest son Parker jumped in and said, Sophie, we're never getting a dog. You might as well stop asking. I was like, yes, we have them right here. So, uh, of course, we, with the help of some friends and working out some circumstances, Christmas morning, they came downstairs and we had this little puppy, Daisy. Yeah, she's a golden doodle and she was really cute for about three days. And uh, so this is what she looks like now. She's a little more grown up. Still pretty cute dog. Uh, here's the funniest thing to me about my dog, Daisy. We've had our dog for two years. Uh, she really doesn't have a ferocious bone in her body. She barks kind of loud, but, you know, she, she'd lick you to death, and that's about it. And uh, so, so here's what I've reflected on as I look at my dog, Daisy. The one thing I can't really get my mind around is the fact that she's a domesticated wolf. I mean, genetically, right? That's what... It's what she is. Breeders over generations have taken wolves and have domesticated them into your average harmless family dog. And you know what? Generations of Christians have done the exact same thing to Jesus. We have domesticated Jesus. We have taken out of Jesus anything that is fearful and fierce and awesome, and we have um, domesticated him. Let me give you just one example of, of how I see this, one example of how this plays out. I was walking um, into a church here in Omaha um, six, seven months ago, and this was the portrait of Jesus that they had hanging in the entryway of that church. And I just had to take a picture of it because I was so frustrated buy it. So look at this. Okay, now I don't have any problem with art and with people trying to make representations of Jesus, but I mean, Jesus has highlights, you know? Jesus has really soft blue eyes. And one of the, one of the girls in our church pointed out that most of you women would kill for eyebrows like that, right? He has immaculate eyebrows. He is apparently Caucasian, which is news to me, I thought Jesus was Jewish, but, you know, let's not let the facts get in the way of our folk art, right? I mean, uh, what's frustrating about 
pictures like this is, again, not that people don't have a right to you know, create art, and certainly there's a long history of art in the church, and not all of it is good, right? But what's frustrating is that it's not hard to see how our picture of Jesus has become very tame, right? very safe. It's not hard to see when you look at these are the kinds of pictures that are hanging in our churches. It's not hard to figure out why it is that the least churched demographic in America is men between the ages of 18 and 35. There's nothing compelling. There's nothing heroic. uh, There's nothing awesome about this Jesus. And again, it's merely one artistic representation, but I think it reflects in a broader way what we have done with Jesus. And here's my concern, unless we see Jesus rightly, we will not worship Him fully. We won't worship Him deeply. We won't feel a sense of deep respect and awe and that we would give our lives to Jesus. That just won't happen unless we see Him rightly. So because of the ways that we have domesticated Jesus and made Him in our own image, we desperately need to reacquaint ourselves with the Jesus that John meets in Revelation chapter 1. So, let me introduce you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, to Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Revelation chapter 1. The words, of course, of this text will be on the screen, but uh, we're going to just sort of work our way through this description, through this text. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it. We're kind of going to walk through it and take a look at what we see. What is it that John reveals to us about Jesus in this vision which begins the book of Revelation? Verse 9 tells us, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I want you to catch, stop there and and catch how John just framed it for you. Here's what's in Jesus. Tribulation, a kingdom, and a lot of patient endurance. I want you to see, John's putting all of that together. Yes, there's a kingdom, there's joy, there's life, and there's also tribulation and endurance and suffering. For some reason in our culture, we have a tendency to polarize, and so life is either all good or it's all bad. And God is either kind to us or He's unkind, and He's either worthy of worship or He's screwing up our lives. And you know everything is either going great or it's in the dumps. I want you to see that according to John, what life in the kingdom of God should feel like is joy and tribulation. And if you're only experiencing one of those, you're probably missing something. Something isn't right. If all you know is sort of joy and happiness, and there's never suffering and hardship, something's probably askew. And likewise, if all you feel is suffering and persecution and there's no sense of hopefulness and joy and worship, again, something is probably off. John, as your brother, as your partner in the kingdom of God, is saying, here's what, here's what I'm a partner in. Tribulation, the kingdom, patient endurance. Those are what you can expect in Jesus. He says, I was on the island called Patmos. Patmos is a... Um, a Roman prison island. If you think Alcatraz, you'll be kind of in the right neighborhood. It wasn't exactly like Alcatraz. It was a populated island. There was a settlement on the island. But it was very arid. It was very isolated. It was a place where the Roman Empire would send people if they didn't want to execute you and they didn't really want to throw you in jail, but they just wanted to be rid of you. 
They would send you to the island of Patmos. They would exile you there, as it were. And so that is where John is. And he says he's there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he's been sent away because of his faith in Jesus. So if you've been exiled from your family because you love Jesus, if you've been exiled from friendships because you follow Jesus, if you're sort of ostracized at work because you're a follower of Jesus, you're you're in good company. You're in the company of great saints like the writer of Revelation, John. He experienced exile for his faith. He was sent away to this place where he was sort of a loner. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, in a sense, John here is just describing the circumstances of this vision that he has of Jesus. But I want to point out something very significant, and that is this phrase, on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is Sunday. In fact, from early Christian history, we have references outside the Bible that when Christians spoke of the Lord's Day, they were talking about Sunday. Uh, The Anglican scholar N.T. Wright says that this is one of the most compelling evidences we have in history that that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did take place. Because think about it. All of the early Christians were Jewish Christians. They were converts from Judaism. Uh, The Jews at this point had a thousand year history of observing the Sabbath day. God had said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so Jews for thousands of years had gathered on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to honor God and to worship Him and to rest. All of a sudden in the first century you have this movement called Christianity that begins to spring up from within Judaism. And they have a different day that they get together to worship on. They change the whole rhythm of their life to gather on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. Why? That only makes sense if something happened on the first day of the week. Something, for instance, like Jesus climbing out of the grave. Because N.T. Wright points out, look, if, if your goal was just to start a new religion or new sect, some new trend of Judaism, you wouldn't change the day you met on. That would be too controversial. People would call you a cult. They would call you crazy. They would say you're inventing something totally different, which, by the way, are all accusations that were leveled against the early Christians. So it's significant that John references the Lord's Day here because the fact that the early Christians gathered on Sunday is one of the most significant evidences that something really did happen on Easter Sunday. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. So remember, John is seeing these things, and he's instructed to write them for us. And so his language is going to try to connect us to what he's seeing. It's going to try to paint a picture for us of what it is that he's taking in with his senses. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw, wait for it, seven golden lampstands. Not what you're expecting, right? I turned and saw some lamps. 
All right? What is that about? Well, we read later on in verse 20 that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches that John is writing to, that Jesus has instructed him to deliver a message to. So, what's the connection? Why would John represent churches using the image of lampstands? The answer is, John knew the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You, my followers, are the light of the world, right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus said, you, my people, my church, my followers, you're you're like a lamp set on a stand, and, and the goal is for your light to shine in a way that people will see and give glory to your Father. So of course, churches are lamps, they're lights. Absolutely sensible image, and what I want you to see is all the images in Revelation, every piece of picturesque language John uses, he's simply borrowing from Jesus or from the Old Testament. Someone asked me last week after the sermon, hey, you said that Revelation has a lot of symbolic language in it, how do I know what the symbols stand for? How should I tell how to read this? Okay? The answer is, you have to know your Bible. If you've never read your Bible, then you should expect to feel a little bit out of sorts in Revelation because it's throwing down all these images that are rooted in the rest of the story. Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. Okay, John's not inventing any new language. He's just borrowing from the language of the prophets, from the language of Moses, from the language of Jesus. And so... If you want to know what Revelation is talking about, man, the best thing you can do is just be a faithful reader of Scripture. Let's talk about the number seven. Why are there seven lampstands? Why are there seven churches? The word seven, the number seven is all over this chapter. There are seven spirits, seven stars. What, what, what is this all about? The number seven is an important number because it symbolizes completeness or wholeness. Okay? Think of the seven days of creation. Right In Genesis, you have the account of God's creation of the world, and it says God created everything six days, seventh day He rests, and that's the pattern He sets up for humanity. You're to work six days and rest on the seventh. Seven is a symbol of completion, of fullness, of everything being whole the way that it should be. And so anytime you see seven in Revelation, it has this symbolic significance. And so what that means for us in the next few chapters is that, yes, though these are seven letters to seven historic churches that actually existed in Asia, this is also God's message to His whole church, to the church throughout time and history. This is God's complete revelation to his whole people. So, I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. Now, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. What does that mean? When I was in college, I took a political science course with a professor who had been an aide in the Clinton White House. And so he would bring artifacts and things from his time serving in the White House to sort of help teach us about political science. And one time he brought a memo 
that was just sort of a daily memo of like, here's what's going on in the White House today. And it had this acronym on it over and over again. The acronym was POTUS, P-O-T-U-S. And it would say, POTUS needs to be here. POTUS needs to be there. POTUS is doing this at this time. POTUS is doing that at that time. And somebody in the class finally asked, hey, who is POTUS? What is that? Is that some secret government agency? What is that about? He said, oh, that, that stands for President of the United States. It's just a shorthand we use in the White House. Okay, so to someone who doesn't understand that shorthand, that language is sort of obscure. But to someone who understands what that means and is familiar with that usage, makes absolute sense. The, the phrase son of man in the Bible is exactly that same way. Okay, son of man on the one hand just means a human being, right? A male, a son. If you are a son of someone, you're a son of man. Okay, if you're a human being. But see, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7 of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel has a vision and he sees one like a son of man. One like a human figure. But the son of man that Daniel sees is given power and authority from God himself and he rules over all of time and all of history. He's this ruling, reigning king that is yet to come in the future. And so when the Bible speaks of the Son of Man, you have, to, you have to ask the question, oh, it's charged with a certain significance because of what Daniel said. Okay, this is why in the Gospel accounts, when um, Jesus is on trial before the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and they're trying to get him to, to admit what he's claimed for himself, and so they say, hey, are you saying, are you saying you're the Son of God? And he sort of just offhandedly says, oh, I'm the Son of Man. And they freak out and say, we need to crucify him. Why? Because he knows when he drops the phrase son of man that he's not just saying, oh, I'm I'm a human being. He is claiming to be that very figure that Daniel was talking about. And so in Revelation chapter 1, when John says, I turned and I saw one like a son of man, he doesn't just mean one who looked like a human being. He means one who did look like a human being and yet something much greater. There was a cosmic significance to this being, to this person. I could tell I was in the presence of someone unique. Now he's going to go on to describe what this being looked like. And I want you to remember that because this language is symbolic, he's not describing what he looks like as much as he's describing what he is like. Okay, That'll be clear as we go forward. So the first thing he says is, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So the first thing he tells us is here's what this being was wearing, a robe and a sash. Okay, now, we don't wear robes a lot, so that's odd to us, right? And that's why when you see a picture of Jesus in a robe, you're like, that's just weird. I don't wear that except for in the morning in my house when I'm drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. Okay? But in the Old Testament... There were two significant people who wore robes, kings and priests. Okay, so this John sees this one and he's dressed in the garments of a king and of a priest, one who has authority and who rules and one who mediates and intercedes for people before God. The hairs of his head, verse 14, were white like wool, as white as snow. According to the book of Proverbs, what does white hair signify? Wisdom. Proverbs says a gray head is a crown of 
wisdom. So when it says Jesus has white hair, this isn't describing his actual physical appearance. It is saying he is full of wisdom. I saw this being and I immediately knew he is wise. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Think about how we say someone can see right through you. What are we saying in that metaphor? We're saying that there's some, some piercing intensity to their, their vision and their sight. It's like they can look not just at you, but through you and into you, and they can see your soul almost. That's exactly what John's trying to describe when he says that Jesus had eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. There's a euphemism we use in English sometimes, and some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not, but when, when we're referring to a leader or someone in a position of authority and influence, and that person has character flaws, that person has weaknesses, sometimes we say they have feet of clay. As a euphemistic way of describing, there are flaws, there are cracks in their character, and eventually their influence, their authority is going to be hampered and hindered by those weaknesses. John is saying this being's feet were like bronze. There is no crack, there is no flaw in his character. There is no weakness in his being. He is a person of impeccable character and integrity. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. When I was a kid, we went on a vacation to Niagara Falls, and there's a a tunnel at Niagara Falls where you can actually go in behind the waterfall, and you come out on this observation deck that literally you're standing behind Niagara Falls. And, And I remember it being one of the most awesome places I've ever been because the sound of that large of a waterfall is both deafening and sort of awesome, and yet at the same time calming. It's a weird paradox. It has sort of a calming effect. It's soothing on on the one hand, and and it's frightening on the other hand. That's exactly what John's trying to capture when he says this this being's voice is like the roar of many waters. it's, It's at the same time soothing and calming and yet frighteningly powerful. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Stars in ancient pagan religions and throughout history have been associated with deity. So, why does Jesus hold the seven stars? This is, again, John's metaphorical way of saying uh, he is more powerful. He, he holds in his hand any other being, any other deity, any other angelic being, anything else in all the universe that seems important, powerful, significant. He's holding them in his hand. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. You know your Bible, you know the book of Hebrews talks about the Word of God as living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Okay, The words that Jesus speaks are the very Word of God, and as such there is power in His speech. He has the ability to speak directly in a way that challenges, that comes from God to us, and that cuts to the heart of our being. And His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Notice, this is an interesting comfort, isn't it? Hey, hey, don't be afraid. I mean, you get where I'm going with this, right? The, the picture of Jesus that I showed you a few minutes ago, you don't feel anyone needing to comfort you after you look at that picture, right? Blue-eyed Jesus with highlights, no one needs to put a hand on you and say, hey, it's going to be okay. But when John encounters Jesus in Revelation, that's exactly what Jesus himself needs to do because John has fallen on his face as though he's dead. He's so awed, he's so afraid, he's so captivated by the power and the authority that resides in Jesus' being that Jesus has to himself lay a hand on him and say, hey, it's okay. Fear not. I am the first and the last. If you caught it when we were reading through this passage, over in verse 8, God himself says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So God said, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Now you have Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. Okay, Not coincidental and not obscure. Jesus is saying, I am God. Fear not, John. It's just me, God. The living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. If he holds the keys to death in Hades, what does that mean? It means he has authority over them, right? It means he's in charge of death in Hades. They don't exist outside of his control. He's in authority over them. There's a guy named Matt sitting at the back of the room. Matt is our site coordinator here this morning. He has the keys to this building. No one gets in here this morning unless someone unlocks the building to let them in. No one gets into the storage closet to get out all of the children's ministry stuff unless someone opens it up for them. Matt holds the keys to this building. That means he has authority. He, in a sense, controls the function of this building. Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. He has triumphed over death. He died and he says, I am now alive forevermore. I've got the keys to death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The book of Revelation begins, this this great book of worship, this culmination of God's story that began at the beginning of time, this book begins with a vision of Jesus Christ himself and with John straining the boundaries of human language to try to describe for us what he saw when he turned around and beheld the voice that was speaking to him. We have a desperate need to see Jesus rightly. We need to see Jesus in the way that John describes Jesus. And so to go back to my introduction, 
My concern is that most of us do not see Jesus this way. For most of us, Jesus has become sort of a kitschy, Christian subculture-y, Galilean hippie, long-haired sort of... That's the vision that comes into our minds when we think of Jesus. We don't have a sense of the weight of Jesus being as the ruler of all time and history, as the God of heaven and earth, as the one who speaks with authority and power, as one whose character is so impeccable that he is worthy of our respect and trust and following. We don't tend to see Jesus this way. And listen, for the rest of the book, I I got news for you, the rest of the book of Revelation is just about worshiping Jesus. Okay? That's what it comes down to. Yes, it tells the story of lots of what goes on under the sun and in God's providence, but it all comes down to Jesus being worshipped by every tribe and tongue and nation. And so if you don't have a right view of Jesus, you will not be compelled to worship him, and your life will not be changed. The goal of worshiping Jesus, the goal of being a follower of Jesus, is that your life gets reoriented around who he is and what he is doing in the world. That your kingdom gets subordinated to his kingdom. That your will gets subordinated to his will. That's that's the point. And instead, what we've done with Jesus is we've sort of slapped him on as a bumper sticker to our already existing life. And said, I'm going to do the same things I would anyway in life, but now Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? Now I have a fish on my car. I'm going to continue living the same life I would have lived otherwise. You, you can't do that with Jesus. If that's the view of Jesus you have, it's a false understanding of who he is. I want you to notice two postures in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17 is where they both are. The first is this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Justin said at the beginning of our service when he read from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has a similar vision of God and falls on his face. Justin said, hey, in the Bible, when people come face to face with God, they don't have to be told to worship. It's an inevitable response that they fall on their face. And so listen, here's what I want to ask. Do you find that you have to muster up the strength to worship Jesus? Do you find that worshiping Jesus is something that you have to sort of discipline yourself to do? If so, could I suggest that maybe you've never actually seen Jesus? Because if you have, if you, if you know the truth of who Jesus is, your response will look exactly like John's. I fell at his feet as though dead. The weight and the power of who Jesus is demands that response. And so, so let me ask this question. What is the posture of your heart toward the Lord Jesus? Just as you sit here this morning, what's the posture of your heart toward the Lord Jesus? Are you one who is bowed down, who has fallen at his feet, who has surrendered, who has given up your agenda and your things that you hold dear and your priorities and have fallen down and said, my life is about Jesus. 
Whatever I thought was important is now not important. Whatever I was thinking about isn't as important as who this person is. What's the posture of your heart this morning toward Jesus? If you've never been awed by Jesus in this way, I just want to encourage you to, to keep studying, keep thinking, keep reading the Scriptures. Because it could be that you've bought into a false or, or faulty vision of who Jesus is. And that your, the Jesus you worship is not weighty enough to sustain your worship. A.W. Tozer says this, We tend by a natural law of the soul to drift toward what we worship. In other words, we have a vision of what Jesus is like, or what God is like, and that's the thing we're actually worshiping. So if your thinking about God is wrong, if the vision you have of Jesus is wrong, your worship will not be correct. We tend to worship what we think God is like. Whatever image of God we believe to be true and accurate. And what I want you to see is, this is what Jesus is really like. John has just laid out for you a vision of Him coming face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What's the posture of your life and your heart toward Jesus? Here's the second gesture that I want you to see. Is is Jesus' response to John when he says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Some of you guys, the way that your view of Jesus is skewed is that you have this view of Jesus that's been given to you by moralism or by sort of a legalistic version of Christianity. And so your vision of Jesus is that Jesus is sort of waiting with a ruler to slap you on the hand for all the stuff you've done wrong. Uh, Jesus is waiting to, um, to beat you down with your sin. That he wants to remind you of what a screw-up you are. That what Jesus is really out to do is just hold up his goodness in your face so that you continually uh, see that you're not as good as him in some sort of older brother competitive kind of way. None of that is true. None of that is how Jesus actually responds to those who humble themselves before him. What Jesus does is to place his hand on you. I mean, just think about that image. Jesus placing his hand on you and saying, fear not. I mean, you know, you know the power of touch? Right? You know when you have a screaming child or a friend who's experiencing loss or pain, man, there's something about just resting a hand on their shoulder that's it's calming. It says, okay, okay, I feel comforted. Jesus is not the kind of being who is waiting for you to humble yourself and come before him in faith and trust so that, so that he can kick you while you're down. Jesus is a being who has conquered death and hell and now lives eternally. And yes, you need to humble yourself before Him. You need to come to the place where you fall down on your knees. And when you do that, Jesus puts His hand upon you and says, Fear not. This, is, this whole text is a picture of the gospel, is it not? 
the first thing that happens in the gospel, the first thing the gospel calls us to is repentance. It's acknowledging that we are much worse than we think. Acknowledging that we have not lived up to God's standards. Acknowledging that we are not fit to be an authority over our lives. That we are not fit to run life apart from God's direction. Repentance is humbling and falling down as, at Jesus' feet, as it were. That's the first step of the gospel, is it Jesus calling us to repentance. Right? But, but the gospel then proceeds by faith, trusting that Jesus in his grace will forgive our sin, will impart to us new life, will empower us now to live differently, will commission us, as he did with John, to take a message and make it known. This, this is a picture of the gospel. And so look, wherever you are this morning, wherever you find yourself, here's what Jesus beckons you to. Humility, repentance, and then grace and commissioning. Come, fall at Jesus' feet. Acknowledge your sin and brokenness and your need of grace. And then be changed by His grace. Be sent as his ambassador, as his messenger. Be called into his work and his kingdom and his purposes. This great final book of the Bible begins with a vision of Jesus so that your worship and my worship can begin from the right place. With seeing and coming face to face with a Jesus who is fearful and frightening and awesome, and yet a Jesus who is gracious and merciful and forgiving. That is the Jesus we worship. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you granted this vision to your servant John, and that you recorded it on the pages of Scripture so that all of our false images of who Jesus is could be straightened out and corrected. Thank you for your power and your awesomeness. Thank you that Jesus is a greater and more weighty and more powerful being than we have ever thought and than we could ever imagine. And so we confess the ways that we have shrunk and domesticated Jesus into something much less than he is. But thank you also, Lord Jesus, that you are willing by your grace to calm our fears, to call us to yourself in faith, to change our hearts, to send us as you do to John, as your ambassadors in the world. Thank you for giving us this vision that both corrects our thinking and that gives us a picture of what the gospel is. So Father, I I pray that you would use this to just confront the posture of our hearts toward you this morning. God, for those who are prideful here this morning, would you humble them? For those who are selfish and self-focused and self-absorbed, would you, would you captivate them with so much, something so much bigger than themselves for them to live for? Would you correct our flawed and faulty thinking? Would you graciously call us into your kingdom and your purposes? by correcting our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Thank you that you are the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.